Last week, we studied the incredible miracle of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were delivered from death by fire and saved by Jesus himself. They refused to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar's statue and were saved by the Lord in a way that left the king declaring how incredibly powerful their God was. This week, our story picks up possibly as much as 20 years later after the chapter we studied last week, chapter three. So if you're tracking with us, we are now possibly as much as 40 years past the time when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were first brought to Babylon from Jerusalem. That's 40 years of them serving in Nebuchadnezzar's court and helping to lead his empire. Nebuchadnezzar has witnessed Daniel do the impossible, tell him what he dreamed, and then tell him what the dream meant. He has seen Jesus show up in the fiery furnace with these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he's benefited in countless other ways from these men being his leaders in his empire. Their wisdom and the fact that they were blessed by God has benefited Nebuchadnezzar greatly. But whenever God has done something, Nebuchadnezzar has always praised their God. He said, your God is powerful. Your God does great things. He's never called him his God. And here in chapter four, that all changes. In fact, chapter four is written entirely by Nebuchadnezzar himself. It is his testimony of how the Lord brought him to the place of salvation. Yes, incredibly, I believe this chapter makes it clear that we are going to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven face to face one day, and he's a saved man. Now, as a disclaimer up front, I need to remind you of something else we talked about last week. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be brought to God through some seriously awful events. And if you're going through some seriously awful events in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in rebellion against God and he's trying to bring you back to him. It could mean that, that's what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but it may not be what's going on in your life. Last week we said there are four reasons why we may experience trouble in our life. Firstly, it could be because we're being faithful to God and we have an enemy named Satan who is out to attack us. That could be the reason you have trouble. Another possible reason is that we're just experiencing the natural consequences of our sin. God isn't punishing us, we're just getting the natural consequences. You murder somebody, you are going to go to jail. That's not God punishing you, it's the natural consequence of your own sin. You could be experiencing trouble because we just live in a fallen world where bad things happen and God doesn't intervene and stop every bad thing from happening because he wants us to have free will. And wherever there's free will, there's gonna be the ability for other people to use their free will to harm other people. But then lastly, you could be experiencing trouble because God is shaping your character. He's doing something in your life through that. That's what we're going to find is going on in Nebuchadnezzar's life. That's what's going on in his story and his life. So let's jump in in chapter four, verse one. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, he's writing this, 
to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So this is not simply a king's journal that Daniel found one day, you know, under his bed and then copied for the Bible. This is an affidavit that the king had duplicated and sent out to be read in public in every corner of his empire, every corner of the known world. So make a note of this and we'll unpack it. It's your first fill-in. Following Jesus means being willing to share your story. Following Jesus means being willing to share your story. Now I understand that you and I do not have the same ability that Nebuchadnezzar had to force people to listen to our story. (laughs) He had a little bit of an advantage in that way. But every believer has to be willing to share their story at a minimum when asked, when asked what your story is. Your salvation and my salvation is not something that we are allowed to keep a secret. The things that God did in our lives to lead us to a relationship with Him and save our souls are not for only us to know. Because following Jesus means you'll share the story that explains how good God is, even if it means explaining how bad you were or how bad you are, depending on how enlightened you are in your spiritual condition. Part of following Jesus means being more concerned about God's reputation than yours. So there's no part of becoming a Christian where you get to say, well, you know, the the way I became a Christian is really a personal story. I really don't like to share it. You don't get to do that. Because when we're saying that, it means that there's part of our story we're ashamed of because part of it makes us look bad or is embarrassing in some way or we don't want people to know how we were living when Jesus saved us. But the truth is, that when Jesus saves you, you become more concerned with him looking good than whether or not you look good. In fact, even if you look bad, if it makes him look good, then you're good with it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar goes on and he says to his empire, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good, underline good, and then also underline to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked And this is the whole message in these last two words here, for me, for me. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. This is so huge. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is going to unpack the incredible story of everything the Lord caused to come into his life. And some of it's going to be horrific, to be honest. But he's writing this testimony at the end of the process, when he's reached the place of salvation. And when he looks back at the spiritual journey that brought him to the place of a relationship with God, he doesn't say, let me recount to you what the Lord did to me. He says, let me tell you what God did for me, what he did for me. And I wanna ask that you keep that in mind as we work our way through this man's testimony because the lesson is this, make a note of this. Everything the Lord does in our lives is for our good. Everything the Lord does in our lives is for our good. One of the benchmarks in the Christian life when it comes to maturity is when we finally reach the place where when things are falling apart in our lives, again, 
we're still able to lift our hands and say, I bless you, Lord, because I've seen enough of you in my life to realize that everything you do, everything you allow in my life is ultimately for my good. And even though I can't see it now, I've been in this kind of story enough times to know how it ends. And it always ends with me thanking you for what you've done in my life. So I'm gonna thank you in advance because I already know the ending. I already know the ending. If you're in a challenging season in life right now, I want to encourage you to make that your prayer in the time of worship and communion we're gonna have after this message. Just Father, thank you that everything you do in my life is good, is good. So remember back in the previous chapter, in chapter three, when the king built a giant statue as a way of declaring to God that his kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, would go on and on forever? Well, notice the change in Nebuchadnezzar in verse three as he talks about the Lord's kingdom. This just blesses me. He says in verse three, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. You see, he's reached the point where he says, listen, here's what I know. His is the kingdom that's gonna last forever. His, not mine. And I love that. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was, and then underline these couple of things here, at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. He's basically just saying, I was on top of the world, and indeed he was. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts, underlying thoughts on my bed, and the visions of my head, and then underlying troubled me. They troubled me. You know, the person that you think is a million miles away from even being open to the idea that God exists, the person who seems like they've got it all together, made in the shade, that person is one event away from an existential crisis that could blow up everything they thought they knew. You see, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a way they believe the world works. And when that worldview is completely shattered, which can happen from one event in a person's life, they're suddenly in a place of existential crisis and they're questioning what everything is all about. It can be a bankruptcy, a divorce, a job loss, a disease, the loss of a loved one. They're one moment away, so make a note of this. Every non-believer is one event away from an existential crisis. The person who believes, well, you know, I just think if you're a good person, that's what all religions are about. If you're a good person, things sort of work their way out and what goes around comes around, whether you wanna call it karma or whatever. The person who believes that, is gonna be faced with a crisis when something awful happens in their life. And they suddenly realize, oh, oh, it wasn't that I was a good person, it's just that I happened to have had a convenient and easy life up to this point because of where I was born, the family I was born into, the socioeconomic status I was born into, and maybe my life wasn't easy because I was a good person because I have been the same person and suddenly everything's falling apart, so what does that mean? That doesn't mean that they're gonna to turn to God. It doesn't mean that. It just means that God is going to ultimately expose the false gods in everyone's life. 
the person who trusts in money, God is gonna expose that as a false God. And then every person has the choice. Either they're going to double down on the lie and ignore what God has revealed, or they're gonna turn to God. That's why when a non-believer gets cancer, I encourage us, don't pray for healing first. Pray that they would turn to God because they need God even more than they need to be healed from cancer. And if going through cancer is what it's gonna take to get them to the place where they question everything enough to become open to the truth of Jesus, then that's a good thing. Pray that they turn to Jesus and then we can pray about the cancer. All of this that Nebuchadnezzar has said is very much the same verbiage that he used 40 years ago in chapter two when he had the dream that troubled him. And it troubled him because he knew it was from the Lord. And so he knows what it feels like when he's had a dream that has a supernatural origin and he's having that feeling again. That's why he's troubled. He knows this is not just some bad pizza. He knows this is something supernatural going on. Verse six. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So what does he do? Well, he does the same thing that we always do before we turn to the Lord. He goes back to the same places that failed him before, the same folks he called frauds and liars 20 years ago. They couldn't help him then, but maybe this time will be different. You know, I looked for happiness and meaning and peace and fulfillment in a relationship. It didn't work out. I know. I'll try another relationship. That should work, right? I didn't find it in my last job. I know what I should do. I should quit my job. Find a different job. Go back to the same places again and again. Verse seven, then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in and I told them the dream, but, and then underline, they did not make known to me its interpretation. And it's interesting that even though Daniel is still the chief of the magi, he's the chief of the counselors, he does not get called in for some reason. Again, it makes no sense, but it's as if the Lord intentionally keeps Daniel out of the king's initial consultation with his counselors just to make it really obvious that they've got nothing to offer the king so that Daniel can't start like telling the interpretation and then they jump on board and they're like, yes, yes, king, and then also this, also this, what Daniel said, and, and also this. They can't do that because he's not there. So it's as if God wants to draw a clear distinction between what he offers and what the wisdom of the world offers. And it's like God is saying, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, exhaust the wisdom of the world. Bring in your best. Ask them what it means. Ask them to explain it to you. Ask them to enlighten you. And then when they can't, then I'll show up. Then I'll show up. You see, God is not simply just another spiritual philosophy. He won't be lumped in with false gods and false religions. He will allow you to exhaust all the other options first if need be in order to help you realize that he is not just another philosophy. He is the only living true God. Verse eight, but at last Daniel, underline Daniel, came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. Daniel means that at that time before he was saved, he called him Belteshazzar. But notice that as he writes this testimony, he started calling Daniel by his Hebrew name again, not the name he was given in Babylon, which was Belteshazzar. 
He only mentions that name because 40 years in, everyone in the empire knows him as Belteshazzar. And so he wants to make sure that everybody knows who it is that he's talking about. And then he says, underline this, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told him the dream before him saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that, underline, the spirit of the holy God is in you. And then I love this phrase, and no secret troubles you. No secret troubles you. You see, when everyone else was losing their mind over their situation and going crazy, like when he started killing the Magi all those years ago, and Daniel was still enough at peace to say, give me 24 hours to pray and I'll tell you what the dream means. That sort of reputation and behavior has continued over the last few decades to the point where the king says, listen, Daniel, I know nothing makes you panic. Nothing makes you lose your cool. You have a peace and a confidence and you can handle anything. That's why I'm glad that I'm talking to you. And I wonder if the same can be said of you and I. When things start falling apart, do we freak out, run around like our hair is on fire, or are we those people who have the peace of God because we know God knows, God sees, and God will take care of me. He'll take care of me. He goes on and he says, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. He says, I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great and the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. This is a good dream so far. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher. A watcher just means an angelic being. A holy one coming down from heaven. Underline that phrase, a watcher. We'll come back to that. He cried aloud. It just means he cried with strength and said thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times, underline times, pass over him. That word times means years. We know this because of Daniel 12. That chapter talks about the coming time in the future known as the Great Tribulation, which we know will be three and a half years. We know it because in Daniel 12, it describes it as a time, times, and half a time. Also in Daniel 12, verse 11, it talks about the same period as being 1,290 days. And in Revelation 13, it will refer to it as 42 months. So it talks about this period of three and a half years in months, in days, and as time, times, and half a time. So to give you the short version without getting into detail, a time would just be one year. Times in the Hebrew language is similar to our word both. 
If I use the word both, you know I'm talking about two. If I said I had all my friends over for dinner last night, both of them, you know I'm talking about two. A time is one, times is two, and half a times is six months, basically totaling three and a half years. All that to say, we know that when the phrase seven times is used here in Daniel 4.16, it's referring to a period of seven years, seven years. Underline this, this is really interesting. And I just want you to notice, notice what this says. Like just read what it says at face value. Verse 17, underline the whole thing. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. So back in verse 13, we had the first mention of a watcher, an angelic being. And there's some incredible stuff that this issue will lead you to. And as much as I would love to get into it, I honestly can't in this week's teaching because there's no time. We're probably gonna come back to it in a special message later on in this series because it's that significant. So all I can do for now is point out a few things to you. If you're a Bible student, you can dig into this and then I'll recommend a book you can read while we're going through Daniel. That'll be very helpful. I just want you to notice what it actually says. Notice that it says this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. Now when we get down to verse 24, we're gonna read that this is the decree of the Most High. So how can it be the decree and sentence of angelic beings, but also the decree of the Most High? The Most High obviously being God himself. I encourage you to dive into that issue. This is one of those things, if you've read Daniel 20 times in your life, you've probably never actually noticed this and clued into what it's actually saying. And so the book I'm gonna recommend to you is a book called Supernatural, and it's by Michael S. Heiser. Supernatural by Michael S. Heiser. Heiser is H-E-I-S-E-R. And we'll get into some of the stuff that he talks about and what this all means later on in this series. I wish we could talk about it more, but I've gotta keep moving. But as we do with all of our Bible studies, we never wanna just skip over something and say it's not important. It is all important. So what's the purpose of what's going to happen? We go on and we hear, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. So something happens in this dream. A great tree is chopped down and a, a messenger from heaven comes down and declares that the reason for this is so that everyone in the world may know and understand that God is greater than any human being, any human king, and any human kingdom, and God is the one who decides who gets authority on the earth. Wouldn't it be great if when we were living in seasons of blessing and abundance, it caused us to say, wow, God is so good to me. And so what else can I do other than draw close to him in gratitude and develop an even closer relationship with him? That'd be so great if that's how we responded to blessing and abundance. But most of the time, that's not how we are, is it? Most of the time, if our lives had only ever been easy and comfortable, we would never be open to the idea of God in the first place or felt the need to seek him or ever taken that step from believing there is a God to actually developing a relationship with him and serving him as our God. 
Nebuchadnezzar was on top of the world. He was flourishing is the word that's used here. But none of that made him seek God. None of that made him thank God. None of that caused him to come to know God. None of that created a sense of urgency about the most important questions in life. And if there's one thing that I've noticed about where we live, when I talk to people in other parts of the world, I've just said, you know, the average person here, life is so good that there's no urgency when it comes to the most important questions in life. People aren't agonizing over the questions like, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What is all of this for? People don't agonize about those questions because right now it's not a pressing issue because life is easy and comfortable. And that was Nebuchadnezzar. No reason to deal with those huge existential philosophical questions when life is good. There's no urgency to deal with those questions. Make a note of this because this is the truth. Most of the time, blessing doesn't lead us to seek God but brokenness does. Most of the time, blessing doesn't lead us to seek God, but brokenness does. In verse 18, we read, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretations, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Remember that this was read throughout the known world, so what a knock on all the other counselors, right? They're reading this aloud, and these are the most prestigious counselors in the Babylonian Empire, and it's being read aloud that all of them could do nothing to help the king. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished, underlined, for a time. Other translations will say for an hour, and his thoughts troubled him. So, When he understands the dream and what it means, Daniel just most likely just collapses and he is just struck speechless. He's got nothing to say. And he just sits there and the king recognizes this is something significant enough. This is not a time to say, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And he just lets him. And Daniel is just sitting there, you know, hand over mouth, just astonished and and troubled. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. We're going to find that in his time of existential crisis, when there was a moment, a small crack of openness in the king's life, what Nebuchadnezzar needed, what, what he wanted more than anything was not someone to tell him everything was gonna be all right. He wanted someone to tell him the truth. He wanted someone to tell him the truth. He knew it was bad. It was all over Daniel's face and his body and he still said, just, it's, it's okay. Just tell me the truth. You see, he had a whole court of sycophants who could tell him that everything would be okay. There's nothing to worry about. Life will be wonderful and you'll prosper forever, but That's not what he needed. He needed someone to tell him the truth. And in our lives, when the Lord puts us in front of someone whom he has brought to that moment of spiritual openness, they need us to tell them the truth. Here's the reality. You know, we we may be scared of losing their friendship or damaging the relationship, but they have other friends. They can make other friends. 
They may not have anybody else who can tell them the truth. You might be it. When God puts you in that situation, the most loving thing you can do is tell them the truth of the gospel. They need it more than anything else. And when we fail to do that, we've really done the most unloving thing we could do because we've placed ourselves before them and we've said, I, I could tell you the truth, but that would be a risk for me, a risk of embarrassment, a risk of awkwardness, a risk of a broken relationship. So when you most need the truth, I'd rather stay silent because that's what's going to benefit me. It's the most unloving thing we can do in that moment. The king seems to respect Daniel so much because he, he knew, he just knew that Daniel would tell him the truth. He'll tell me the truth. So make a note of this. When God places us before a non-believer in a moment of spiritual openness, it's so that we can tell them the truth. It's so that we can tell them the truth. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. So he's so troubled that what he says to the king is he says, if only this dream was about your enemies and about those who hate you and not about you. I'm amazed that he cared for the welfare of his king and, and even though he was the king and Daniel was his subordinate, I, th I think They've developed a very genuine friendship and relationship. Daniel was the prime minister of the Babylonian Empire. He, he would have seen the king almost every day unless he was out of city on some sort of errand. And the king has just developed this affection and trust and respect for Daniel. And Daniel served this man faithfully even though he wasn't a believer and he was concerned about his welfare. And that's such a good model for us that when it comes to our bosses and those above us and our managers and those who work in our governments locally and nationally, whoever they may be, a godly thing is to be concerned about their welfare and about their well-being. And I hope that if the prime minister drives you crazy sometimes, that you will allow that to lead you to pray for him. And don't just pray like, God, help him to make good decisions instead of the decisions he's making now. Pray for his marriage. Pray for his family. Pray for his kids. Pray that God would bless him. That's the way Daniel handled being under Nebuchadnezzar, the non-believer. Verse 20, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, underline, it is you, O king. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. When the prophet Jeremiah was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about King Nebuchadnezzar from God's perspective, this is what he wrote, I put it on your outline. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. In other words, the Babylonian kingdom would be conquered at some point, but it would be after Nebuchadnezzar has died. 
And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. You see, God recorded through the prophet Jeremiah that it was him who made Nebuchadnezzar unstoppable. It was God who made him an unstoppable military force. So back to Daniel interpreting the king's dream, verse 23. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times, seven years pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High. Underline, this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. Now underline they in verse 25. They shall drive you from men. Again, I can't get into it, so I'm just gonna give you the clues. Uh, I just wanna point out to you that the they that is used here is in reference to the watchers. And you might read that and think it's just talking about the people of Babylon, but the they is going to be used in the next couple of verses in a way that cannot apply to men. So it's an application to the watchers. So the watchers will drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times, seven years shall pass over you, till, underline till, there's an expiration on this, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So this is what's gonna happen to Nebuchadnezzar. This is Daniel's news. He's gonna be supernaturally cursed with a mental disease that is going to make him think he's an animal. This is a real documented medical condition that's called lycanthropy. And it's been medically documented several times. I was reading about a situation in 1946 in England where they documented this person just loses their mind and, and acts like an animal and thinks they're an animal. He's gonna go out into the fields outside of Babylon that are full of animals and he's gonna live like one of them for seven years. Why seven years? Because apparently that's how long it's gonna take him to get to the place where he accepts the reality that God is greater than him, and God is the one who decides who gets power on the earth. Just before the verses we read from Jeremiah, the Lord says, said this as well, I put it on your outline. I have made the earth, the man, and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it to whom seem proper to me. Verse 26, and inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. The literal translation there is that God rules. So incredibly, God also prophesies through Daniel that after the seven years are complete, when the king reaches the place of surrender before the Lord, his kingdom is gonna be given back to him. So not only is this incredibly gracious on God's behalf, but understand why God is doing this as well. He's doing it because it proves emphatically not only can God take power from anyone he wants, he can give it back to anyone he wants as well. You see, if he just lost his mind, 
people could say, well, that's, that's not God. He just, he just went crazy. But God says, not only that, I'm going to make you lose your mind and become like an animal for seven years. Then I'm going to give it back to you, and I'm going to give your whole kingdom back to you. I can take, and I can give. I can do what I want. That's what God is proving through this. Daniel is so troubled that this is what's going to happen to his king, his friend, that he tries to counsel him, and he says, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So apparently Daniel has noticed that the king is not merciful to the poor the way he should be. Perhaps he's surrounded by the poor in his city and he has rooms and rooms full of gold, but he doesn't use it to solve the problem of poverty among a certain class of his citizens. And so Daniel says, maybe if you work on that, God will see a changed heart in you and and maybe he won't have to do all this to you. But you know what? Nebuchadnezzar is just like you and I. God gives us warning after warning after warning and we don't listen. When he gives us a warning and we don't listen, do we think, oh man, God is merciful. No, what do we think? We think I'm getting away with it. Nothing urgent, no need to do anything. Clearly I'm getting away with it. Verse 28, just underline the whole thing. And then he just says, all this, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. The king himself testifies, and it all happened exactly the way Daniel said it would. At the end of the 12 months, underline 12 months, he was walking about, that actually means he was walking upon the royal palace of Babylon. So a year later, Nebuchadnezzar, he would have been walking on the walls, because the word there is upon, the walls of Babylon, which were a wonder in and of themselves. Babylon proper was around 15 square miles and was surrounded by an inner wall. And then the outer city also had another wall the same size around it. The Greek historian Herodotus is considered to have exaggerated a little bit the glory of Babylon, but other historians claim similar figures here. Let me give you some. Herodotus wrote that its walls were 320 feet high and 80 feet thick, wide enough to have chariot races on the top, six chariots wide. He also claimed that the exterior wall went on for 56 miles. That's how far you'd have to walk to get around it. The exterior wall also had 250 guard towers that extended another 100 feet into the air and made the city virtually unattackable because they could see you from 100 miles away. Remember, the city is on a plane. It's on the plain of Shinar. So they'd see you miles away. And just imagine if you are down there and you are trying to throw spears at guys who are in a tower 400 feet above you. Who's going to have more success? You on the ground or the guys 400 feet up? Because I don't even know if you can throw a spear 400 feet into the air to hit someone. All they've got to do is start it and gravity is going to do anything. Rocks, spears, oil, whatever they want. You're just not going to get in there. The city was considered and goes down historically as being essentially impenetrable. You just couldn't get through its defenses. It was impossible, seemingly. We'll find that in a later chapter. It wasn't so. 
The cost to build it would have been countless billions, hundreds of billions worth of dollars in today's economy. Nebuchadnezzar had also even diverted the Euphrates River to turn it into a moat around the entire city that added another layer of defense and also gave it a supply of drinking water that would never ever dry up if the city was to be sieged. The inside of the city was so well developed and had so many supplies stored up that it was estimated the city could survive a 20 year siege without anybody having to leave the walls of the city. In the middle of the city on a 400 foot by 400 foot base extending 400 feet into the air were a series of gardens famously known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon built by Nebuchadnezzar, one of the seven original ancient wonders of the world. It was visible from hundreds of miles away across the plain of Shinar and was described as looking like a mountain of flowers. At the top was a temple to the god of Babylon, Bel, where Belteshazzar comes from, and a statue of this god that was only about a foot high but was so ornate it would have been worth hundreds of millions of dollars in today's economy. And so here is the king. He's walking on the walls just looking at this and he's going like, man, I am the business. I am awesome. And so this is where we pick up our scene. Verse 30, the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon? that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. You know, God is so gracious. In verse 29, we were told that this is a year, this is 12 months after God spoke to the king through Daniel. And in that year, the king hasn't repented, hasn't followed Daniel's advice. He's still puffed up, he's still proud, he's still high on himself. How gracious is God to give him a year A year, if you're not counting, God's already given him like 40 years, and he gives him another year. When Noah was building the ark, and Noah was preaching to everyone around him, turn to God, stop your wickedness. Everyone says, oh man, how mean was God to kill everybody else except Noah? How long did God give everybody else to repent and change? How long did it take to build the ark? He gave them 120 years. 120 years before God wiped out the Canaanite people for things like child sacrifice and more wickedness than I could put into words. How long did he give them to repent and change? 400 years, 400 years. The patience of God is extraordinary. And have you noticed he does the same thing with you and I? I know this doesn't apply to you because you're all such great Christians, but I've noticed in my own life that I can be a hypocrite in the sense that I want grace for me but wrath for everybody else, right? So I look at somebody else's life and I'm like, like Lord, Lord, they are, like they're just flagrantly rebelling against you. That that sin, you know, we've talked to them about it and they're still doing it, they won't stop. Like, Like Lord, it's time for some wrath, time for some wrath, it's been like two months, time for some wrath. I'm like, how long are you going to let this go on? And God's like, well, in your life, I let that thing go on for like 15 years. So never mind, never mind. Just I'm sure you're busy. You get back to what you're doing, Lord. That's fine. He's so gracious. He gives us time to change and time to turn to him. But if we won't, and I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Write this down. God loves us enough to let the bottom fall out of our lives if that's what it will take to get us to him. 
God loves us enough to let the bottom fall out of our lives if that's what it will take to get us to him. You see, he'll put us through some trouble in this life if it will save us from the worst kind of trouble in the next life. He'll put us through some fiery trials in this life if it'll save us from the fires of hell in the next life. Would you agree that the next seven years are gonna be really, really bad for Nebuchadnezzar? Really bad. You bet. And yet what did Nebuchadnezzar write at the beginning of this chapter as he looks back on everything? He said, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. For me, not to me, for me. God will do whatever it takes to get us to him. Verse 31, while the word, his boasting about the city he built, was still in the king's mouth. He just finished saying it. A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. The idea when it talks about the dew of heaven is that he's roaming the wild naked. He's got matted hair, uncut fingernails, and He's just in total humiliation, barely recognizable as human. And if you've ever known someone with a serious mental disease, um, schizophrenic or anything like that, you know that they don't wanna be that way. They don't wanna be that way, but they just can't, they just can't seem to get it together. They just can't seem to will themselves to be well. And so I imagine Nebuchadnezzar waking up every morning and thinking to himself, okay, okay, today, Today I'm gonna get it together. Today I'm gonna stay focused. I'm I'm gonna overcome this. I've got the mental strength to beat this. But he just can't. He just can't. And how long did he keep fighting this sentence from God? Seven years, apparently. Seven years he went saying, I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna figure this out. But he never could. And I heard a quote that was so good, it bears repeating. And you can write this down. God's plan A is humility. His plan A is humility, that we would recognize our need for him and turn to him. And his plan B is humiliation. His plan B is humiliation. When we refuse to get it, God loves us enough to work in our lives in such a way that it becomes clear that we need him. I don't know about you, but I'm really fond of the plan B sort of thing. I've used that a lot more times in my life than I'd care to admit. Verse 34, and at the end of the time, so when this seven years was over, he reaches that breaking point. He recognizes he can't fix himself. He recognizes he's not great. He recognizes that God can do with his life whatever he chooses. And in that moment, I imagine he drops to his knees, he lifts his head and his hands to heaven, and he says, You were right about everything. You were right about everything. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. He regains his mental clarity and sanity. And I, and then underline this, 
blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. The result of true salvation, put this on your outlines, the result of true salvation is always a desire to praise God. You notice that God doesn't send someone along to tell them, now, you see, now that you've turned to God, you should praise God, because that's something we do as Christians. We like get together and say things about God and sing songs, it's just something we do. Nobody has to tell him to do that. He just has the desire to thank God and honor God, because it's the natural byproduct of understanding that God's been merciful and gracious to you. And this is incredible to me, because when he writes here, he literally sounds more like the Apostle Paul than he does the Nebuchadnezzar of the other chapters that came before this. He writes, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. We're nothing compared to God. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. I love that too. He says, God does what he wants in the supernatural, and he does what he wants in the natural realm as well. And then I love this. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, no one can stop God, but then I love that last one. He says, no one even has the right to question God or demand an explanation from him. The idea is he's realized how laughable it is The idea that some people still espouse today when they're like, well, when I meet God, I'm going to have some questions for him. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you you won't. No, you won't. Nobody gets to say to God, explain yourself. He's God. Does what he wants. He doesn't even owe anybody an explanation. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was resorted to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added, underline added to me. His sanity returns, and as promised, his kingdom is given back to him. But not only that, but God prospers and blesses him even more. I love what Proverbs 22.4 says. It says, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And to cap it off in verse 37, he no longer talks about somebody else's God, he talks about his God. I have the whole thing underlined because I love it that much. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. And I love that so much, not, not because I'm thinking, yeah, God showed him, but because it makes me step back and look at the incredible lengths that God went to across decades, across miracles, in order to reach one man, just one man. And God knew somewhere in the midst of all that pride and, and stubbornness within Nebuchadnezzar, he knew that in the right circumstances, Nebuchadnezzar would turn to him. And so he brought about those circumstances. And I just marvel at that. I marvel at the extravagance of God's grace. And I marvel at the extravagance of his grace in my own life and the lengths that he has gone to in my own life. Because behind Nebuchadnezzar's salvation, behind my salvation and your salvation is an even more amazing miracle. The Son of God who left the glory of heaven to be clothed in human form 
and suffer through the torments of the fallen world that we have made, and yet he never sinned, living the perfect life that that I could never live and, and meeting God's perfect standard in a way I never could. And then he took my place, redirecting the wrath of God that I deserved as the right penalty for my sin against God. He redirected that wrath to himself on the cross and hung in my place and received the punishment and death that should have been mine. And then he rose again in victory over death, clothing me in that same victory, that same new life, that same power over death, and gave me a path to walk that would lead to everlasting life. So don't ever think that your testimony is mundane. Don't ever think, oh, my testimony is unexciting. Your salvation and my salvation are miracles of the greatest, greatest magnitude. It's unbelievable, unbelievable what God has done. God hates pride. He hates pride. He says so clearly in the Bible. He hates it because it is the obstacle preventing everyone who does not believe right now from believing. The obstacle is pride. It was the sin that caused Lucifer to fall from heaven, and it was the sin that caused Adam and Eve to rebel against God. Every time we choose the path of pride, we're becoming less like Jesus. Every time we choose the path of humility, we're becoming more like Jesus, because Jesus is the exact opposite of pride. I put this on your outlines. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2. Let this mind, so let this way of thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't make it his whole ambition to become as important as he could, but he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, when we submit our lives to our heavenly Father, the result is always that he lifts us up and he blesses us. That's Nebuchadnezzar's story. That's your story, that's my story. That's even the story of our Savior Jesus because Paul goes on and he says, after Jesus submitted his life to his heavenly Father, therefore, which means for that reason, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whenever we submit our lives to God, he always lifts us up. He always blesses us more than we could ever imagine. So what should we walk away with from today's study? Well, firstly, I hope a reminder of how great the grace of God is and how patiently and how extravagantly he's worked his grace in all of our lives. I hope we take communion in this coming time and and worship today with a renewed sense of wonder and gratitude toward the Lord. It's a day to thank God for what he's done in your life in the past and what he's doing for you right now because whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever's going on, 
It is for you. God is doing something through it for you. He's doing a good thing. And secondly, I hope that Nebuchadnezzar's salvation is a reminder that God can reach anybody. God can reach anybody. That person that you're ready to give up, or maybe you've given up praying for because you think it's just never, ever, ever gonna happen. There's no way. Don't give up. You have no idea. There could be one event away from everything that they've built their life on completely collapsing and suddenly be in the place of needing to hear the truth. And maybe God's gonna put you there in that moment. So don't give up, don't give up. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we wanna just begin by by praying especially for those who don't know you and those ones that that we look at and if we're honest, we, we just think there's no way. They're so resistant. They're they're not even open the slightest bit at all. Anytime I try to share something, they've got some witty comeback or put down or dismissal and I just don't see how it could happen. Father, we recognize that you have looked into their life and you know that if there is any scenario in which they would turn to you, you will bring that scenario about. As you did in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, you're willing to work across decades if that's what it takes to get them to the place of salvation. So Father, I pray you would fill us with a renewed passion and vigor and drive to pray for those in our lives who don't know you, God. That you would fill us with faith to believe that you can do it. You can reach them where they are. And we pray that you would, God. And then Father, we just thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your patience. We look back at at all the times that uh, we should have found wrath, but we found mercy and grace instead. And Father, I just pray for all of us that if there's an area of our life right now we know that you're asking us to change, that we wouldn't take your grace for granted. We wouldn't think, I'm getting away with it, it can't be that urgent. That we would not take advantage of your kindness that we would choose the path of humility rather than the path of humiliation. Father, we just thank you that you are gracious and you are patient with us over and over and over again. You're so good. Father, please help us to be that gracious and that patient with other people, with our families, in our marriages, in our places of work, in our schools. Keep it fresh in our minds how gracious you've been to us. And as we take communion today, would you just overwhelm us with with how much we've been forgiven so that we can go out and extend that same kind of radical grace to other people, Lord. We love you and we bless you for your kindness to us. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. 
It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.